Amen. You can grab a seat. Glad you're with us this morning. My name's Ben, one of the pastors at Hope Church. And if you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Uh, we'd love for you to be looking at the scripture we're going through with us so you can just see. Is this what the text says? What's it say around there? What are, what are they pulling out? And does that kind of agree with what I think Christianity is or what the Scripture says? At Hope Church, we are a Bible-based church. That means our authority comes from Scripture. Please be reading along with us. Uh, if you have a copy, if not, we'll have those words on the screen for you, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Scriptures on your way out. Now, what we just sang, uh, I don't know if you're like really paying attention or if you're just kind of feeling the vibe, but the words for it, I think it's important, uh, maybe from even a legal perspective, um, for me to emphasize, we are not advocating any kind of arsony at Hope Church. <laughs> Set a match, let it burn out of control, I want that fire. No, it's a metaphor, uh, and in fact, Hope Church is anti-arson, and we don't care who knows it. Uh, we don't want you to go actually set a fire, but the metaphor of that song is very powerful, and it is something, in fact, that we want to not only pursue, but we want to, like, set the world on fire with. If you go to Acts, the second chapter, when the Holy Spirit comes to, to ignite those apostles and send them out to go and preach the gospel, it's like a flame of fire that's above their head. There is a, a way in which the Holy Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit's person is represented by a fire and the concept of a fire that rages, of, of people that are dry and far from God being set alight with the presence of God. That's a apt metaphor. We're pro that. Now, how do we do that? If you've been going through Philippians with us, he is advocating not only living the Christian life and pushing the ball forward when it comes to kingdom matters. We talk about ministry. Well, that does, that's just a word. That word, though, means service. And it has sort of the connotation of service unto God, that you're giving people access to the words of God, his great blessings, his great love, who he is as a person. That you're spending your life, you're being spent by God out in the world pleading the cause of the widow so that people will see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. That you're speaking with people. That's what Paul's modeling for us. He's modeling this, this intense and regular arguing for people to know God. Well, that's difficult. It's difficult to ramp up to. It's difficult to do on a regular basis. And what Philippians is, is modeling, promising, commanding, is not only that you do those things, but that you do those things with rejoicing. That your heart, as you go through them, it's not enough for you to just do these things. That you have to be doing these things with joy. Like wild, happy joy. As Paul says again and again, it's sort of the watchword through this book. Rejoice, rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. It's got to be your heart as you go through this. How do we do that? That's when I think we're kind of capturing with that metaphor of a fire as it dances, as it explodes. Energy. How do we have that? How do we serve without hesitation, without reservation? Does that describe you? If you're outside of the church and you're kind of looking into Christianity, does that, 
Does that describe what you think a Christian is? It's not just a doer, but a doer with joy, not just a painted joy. It's a reference to your heart flowing and overflowing with some kind of real joy. If we're going to have that, if we're going to feel that, if we're going to experience that and actually preach that, we need to see it. It says in Philippians 2, starting in verse 19 and working forward, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Just to remind you, this book, Philippians, is actually a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul under the influence of the Holy Spirit to a church that he had planted in a city called Philippi. And in this letter, he's actually in prison, and he's writing to this church that he helped to start, talking about now, as we're moving into the second part of the letter, some logistical stuff about this guy Timothy that he's hoping to send soon with news of Paul to this church. Just to catch you up. Verse 20, talking about Timothy, he says, I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. That is a description, not just of what we do, but do you see the concern about how we do it? He's talking there about love. He's saying that Timothy actually operates out of a genuine love for the people that he's serving. That's what he says in verses 20 and 21. I have nobody like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He goes further and he's saying that not only is Timothy concerned about these people, he's concerned about the glory of God. They seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, implying that Timothy is seeking the interests of Jesus Christ, that Timothy is an example, not just in the way in which he executes ministry. I bet he was well-spoken. He's certainly somebody who knew the Scriptures, and if you're hanging out with other Jewish people who are also knowing the Scriptures, being taught the Scriptures throughout their life, to have somebody like Timothy who can bandy about these arguments and very quickly assemble concepts of Scripture in a convincing way. I bet the way in which he, he spoke and preached and lived was impressive. But he's not commended for that here. Paul's saying that this guy Timothy is actually somebody who loves. That his interests are those of you knowing that you are only really going to be glad, really be happy, really be saved if he ministers Jesus to you. And so further, his interests are not just yours, but Jesus' interests. To go forth and make disciples of all the world, teaching them all that he's commanded. Do you see? This Timothy guy is actually operating from love all the way down, and I'm sure not constantly, but as an example, all the way down, his interests are others, not himself. And so the flip side of that, the negative example, what we should not be doing and yet are tempted to do all the time is serving others from our own interests, as it says in 21. They all seek their own interests. 
Now, I would imagine it'd be very difficult to know from the outside your motivation for doing what you do. I mean, it seems that way. You could fool me pretty easy. If you're doing good things and you're doing it with a smile, do I really know if you're doing it out of love or not? To some degree, Paul was able to tell. But I I think you should notice that it's difficult to know because from the outside, you could be doing all the things that a Christian should do. It's possible to live your life in such a way that you appear to be somebody who is following God. And yet, on the inside, no. That goes from being a warning, an offer of a way to make your service to God joyful. That's an offer that sounds exciting. It goes from an offer to a warning that it's possible to live this Christian life and even do things that are incredible acts of service and faithfulness to God and yet not know Him. The life of Christ shows this in a beautiful, um, drastic way. Because being God, He's yet also a man. And so as He's living and doing His life and ministry as a man, He's doing um, this example for us of either love and service to God or this other thing. And it's kind of difficult maybe to see the other thing through Christ because he's perfect. But there is this time early in his ministry where he's tempted by Satan himself. Now, we're a church that believes Scripture, and so we believe in God, and we believe in an enemy, a devil, a being other than us. He's not human. That is yet spiritual and and rebellious against God. In the life of Christ, and we get in the New Testament, New Testament starts with Jesus. It starts with these four books that tell about the life and ministry of Jesus. In these four books, it talks about early in Jesus' life as he's beginning his ministry. So, I mean, he's in his 30s. He begins his ministry. He's baptized, and then as he comes up from baptism, he's being led by the Spirit out into the desert, into the wilderness, where he fasts for 40 days. And at the end of that time, the enemy comes and tempts him, the devil tempts Christ. And it says in Scripture, and I think Matthew 4 is probably the the really clear sort of place. There's also in Luke, and I think it's mentioned in the other Gospels, but Luke, you have the, the story of the temptation of Christ by the enemy. But in Matthew 4, it says that the Spirit leads Jesus out into the desert and He fasts. No food for 40 days, 40 nights. It wasn't one of those things like sun up to sundown, and as soon as the sun's down, no, 40 days, 40 nights. No food. And it says in Scripture that in the 40 days, he was hungry. Duh, right? Like, of course he was. Well, maybe not, of course he was. People may have thought Jesus, you know, he had some sort of superpower to not feel hungry. No, he was really a man, really fasting for 40 days. And at that point of weakness, the enemy meets him. And the temptation is, turn these rocks into bread. And the response Jesus has is, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. His response to comforting himself, to serving himself, is to worship God and to say, no, but but God is good. He's my food. He's what I need. 
So then the enemy gives him a second temptation and says, I'm going to take you up. And he, some, either through bodily or, or in the spirit, he takes Jesus to the top of the temple in Jerusalem and says, throw yourself down. Because the scripture says that he's not going to, uh, he'll command his angels concerning you. You know, you're not going to strike the ground if you throw yourself off. In fact, all of Jerusalem that you need to convert will see that you are definitely God's anointed because he's going to send his angels to catch you lest your foot strike the stone. And of course, Christ responds with more scripture and says, hey, we're not going to test God. So then the devil, again, and I don't know if this is like a vision or if it's some sort of teleporting or what, but he shows him all the kingdoms of the world, some sort of slide presentation all the kingdoms of the world and says, all of this will be yours. You just bow down and worship me. Of course, Christ says, be gone. Worship the Lord your God only and him only shall you serve. And I'm butchering some of this. I apologize. But but he's responding that no, worship belongs to God alone. And I go through this elaborate sort of story because I want you to see that either or that exists It's either you operate out of a love of God to you and then love from you to others. It's either a love-based life, which is what Jesus models there. He loves the Lord his God more than food. He loves the Lord his God more than his own comfort. I think the real temptation of throwing yourself off the temple And the real temptation behind this uh, bow to me and I'll give you all the cities of the world is some sort of accomplishing of his goal from the enemy's perspective without having to go to the cross. Yet Jesus loves the Lord even more than his own safety, more than his own comfort. Or you have this enemy. He's showing us this totally other way of being. And yeah, okay, we kind of hard to understand the devil or, or to understand his, his works, sure. But in the Gospels, Jesus says that the devil has representatives in the same way that he is a representative of God. That both Jesus and John the Baptist call the Pharisees sons of the serpent. Now, again, I don't know what your like dissing game is, but from a New Testament perspective, that's top shelf. That's as hard as you can insult somebody. To say that they are sons of the enemy, that they are the devil's representatives. They're like his kin. They speak his language. They have his loves. And what are the Pharisees? The Pharisees are those who appear to serve God, but on the inside, they're serving themselves. They're pursuing their own interests. They have this idea that if they do godly things, they'll be seen as godly. And then... They can stand before God, not as servants, but as equals, maybe eventually superiors. So the Lord compares the Pharisees to a whitewashed tomb, which outside is white and gleaming, but on the inside is dead man's bones, filth and rot. Do you understand how much this matters? When we talk about your loves, when we talk about your life, when we talk about the motivation for your service to God, it must be, it must be from love of God. 
It's a love that you experience from him and that you then show to the world. It bounces around from you to the others within this Christian community and from us out into the world. But it's got to be love. It can't be a Christian-looking Phariseeism, a Christian-looking pride. Can't build a ladder to heaven. We have to have faith. Then he continues and he gives this other sort of surprising quality, qualification of those that serve God. And he's talking about Christ, obviously, but he's talking about himself to some degree. And he's certainly talking about Timothy. And then he invites this other person, this person that's even closer to the community there at Philippi, Epaphroditus. It says in verse 25, I have, all, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, I don't know if you've got a, a little boy on the way or not, but that's a great name. Epaphroditus. It's a mouthful, but he's a great example. Be good for your kid to live up to. I'd be upset with you. It'd be like a boy named Sue or whatever. But Epaphroditus, something to consider. My brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. And I'm the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Here's what's surprising. If you do this right, if you do this with joy, from love, humbling yourself, Christ's servants were supposed to be like children. Whatever else children are, they're at the kind of the bottom of the ladder. We're supposed to be least of all, servant of all. Jesus washing disciples' feet as an example. We're supposed to go low, but even if you do that, maybe even especially if you do that, He's saying that you're going to suffer. He's reiterating a clear teaching that Jesus had. He said, Jesus said, in this world you will have suffering. He said, take heart. I've overcome the world. And while we can rejoice in that promise, you have to also understand the premise. You will have sorrow. You will have trouble. He said, if they do this to me, if they strike the master, what do you think they're going to do to the servants? There's no mercy left. They're going to come after you too, and church history is replete with the blood of the saints. And this Paphroditus guy has got an example for us all. Here he is. He's He's not just a messenger, he's a minister. So he's not just bringing news about the church in Philippi to Paul. He's also bringing probably money to help serve Paul. That's the best way for you to get goods and services from one place to another. Convert it into cash, take the cash, give it to a trusted fellow servant, and then send him. So this was one of their guys that they trusted. Obviously, Paul's impressed with the dude. He's not some just messenger. He's a person that was loved and trusted, a person who had the right motivations, like Timothy, like Paul, in some ways, like Christ. He's held up as a guy that we can trust, that we can look to. And yet, what has happened to Epaphroditus while he's on this great mission 
What happened to Paul when he's on this great mission to Philippi? Paul's beaten with rods, and here this Epaphroditus guy's got this illness to the point that he's near to death. In this Christian service, you will have suffering. But it's a joy. There's something here that's described maybe outside of this text more than in this text, but there's something here that means that you have joy even in the midst of this kind of suffering and this kind of service. Now, if you've been at Hope Church for the last year, we've encouraged people to go through an Old Testament Bible reading plan for this year. We want to expose you to all of Scripture, not just the little bit that we're going to read on a Sunday morning. We try to read a lot. Josh is reading, I'm reading, David or Caleb. We're all reading Scripture to you. But if this hour on a Sunday is your only exposure to Scripture, you're going to miss a lot of stuff. So we encourage you to go through this Bible reading plan. And for this year, it's the Old Testament. And we do it through an app. And you can actually see the people who have agreed, like, yeah, let me do it. And then you can tell, like, when they stop doing it, like, it doesn't have a check mark anymore. And you can realize that maybe for them, the Old Testament got a little uphill or something. And, and let's put a good spin on it. Maybe they just sort of shifted back over to the New Testament and they're still reading regularly. I hope so. But if for you, the Old Testament got a little difficult, I get it. There's some barriers to entry in the Old Testament that you don't always have in the New Testament. I totally get it. But I do want to try and take those apart a little bit because there's a beauty there that's magnificent. One of the examples that I have for somebody who is in ministry, who is suffering, and yet has a joy, has a a hope that runs all throughout his suffering and service, leading him to keep going and to pushing forward is Ezekiel. If you ever read through Ezekiel, again, it's dense because what's happening is pretty tough. It's pretty difficult. You see, in the Old Testament, you have the story. God creates. He gives Adam and Eve this life, this calling, this mission, and instead they reject him. They, they fall, and he takes them out of the garden, and yet he promises a redemption. And the whole rest of the Bible is this story of a holy God redeeming a sinful humanity. You go through a little bit further in that first book of the Bible and you get to a guy named Abraham. And God promises that through Abraham, he's going to have this family and all the world's going to be blessed. That that salvation story is now entwined in the story of this guy, Abraham, and his physical children. So he has a child named Isaac who has a child named Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And those 12 sons, through this story, end up in Egypt. And in Egypt, they end up having kids. Like kids, kids, to the point that each of those people, each of those men, instead of just having a family, have a tribe. Tens of thousands of people that are then part of that unique group within Abraham's kids. God then calls those 12 tribes out of Egypt through this guy Moses and brings them to a promised land. He gives them the law, he gives them the priesthood, he gives them all of these promises, and he gives them a promised land. And again, I'm skipping over a lot of stuff. There's a wilderness experience, yada, yada. But they end up in this promised land where he gives them a kingdom. They're no longer just 12 tribes or a family. They're also a nation. And this nation continues to screw things up. You have the judges until Saul, not a great king, and then you have David. And again, through David, you have this very clear vision of who this Christ is going to be. He's not perfect, not even great. But he's a man after God's own heart, and he has a lot of qualities that are uh, echoes of what this Jesus is going to be like. David has a son, Solomon. Great, great wealth under Solomon, but there's all kinds of rumblings because Solomon also disobeys God. 
Through his idolatry, God actually rips the kingdom in half, and you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. So if you flip open to most of the Old Testament history, you're going to be hearing about the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel, because of their total rebellion against God, gets destroyed. Wiped off the map. That's Assyria now. But Judah continues. They do have some kings that follow after God. Till you get to this point where Judah's idolatry before God has gotten so bad that now God is even allowing that kingdom to be taken apart. The temple where God's presence reigned there in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, that that has now been not only conquered, not only inhabited, but burned to the ground. And Ezekiel's prophesying during this time, and he knows that, that God... He knows there's good things coming, but he has to know it through a kind of suffering that few of us have ever felt. He has it on the spiritual plane in that he sees God's glory actually leave the temple. God's presence actually walking away from his people. Because his people have totally abandoned him. But he also has it on a a relational, a physical level. There's a point at which God tells him, Ezekiel, your wife is going to die. But because you're my prophet, because you are a lived parable for the speaking, the preaching that I've got you doing, I don't want you to mourn your wife's death. And when people question you, you will tell them, and then there all goes the message. But Ezekiel has to watch his wife die. And you may think to yourself, well, I don't know, maybe he didn't like her. No, it says in the text that she was the light of his eyes. I woke up with a nightmare this week that my wife had died. By God's grace, I was able to wake up and it was just a nightmare. It was Ezekiel's reality. Being a good servant, he had great suffering. And yet, he also had a front row seat to something that would give him joy, give him hope, allow him to press through that suffering and continue in the ministry that God had given him. As you go through the book of Ezekiel, eventually you get to this vision where God talks about restoring the temple rebuilding the temple. You need the Old Testament to understand how big a deal that is. But it's the place where God's presence meets the world, meets humanity. And from that temple begins to flow this water. It says in Ezekiel 47, you've got to get through like eight chapters of temple description before you get to Ezekiel 47 where it talks about this water that's coming out from the temple flowing to the east. And the picture of this is really beautiful because it starts as a trickle. But you go down a thousand stadia or whatever the measurement was, and then it's ankle deep. You go down further, and now it's knee deep. How is it getting deeper? It's all flowing from one source. How is it becoming greater and greater? It is. You go further, it's waist deep. Eventually, he can't even cross it. It's too deep. And this water is this sweet, fresh water that's flowing out into the world, and it's changing the world. Along either side of the banks of this river are trees that grow that produce fruit, and they produce fruit monthly. I don't know what you know about trees. I'm dumb enough that yesterday I wanted to go like pick uh, pick apples with the kids. Well, you can't pick apples after it's apple time. Apple time is a time, and then when that time's done, the trees are done. You got to wait till next year. Sorry. That's how trees work. Again, this is on me, not them. But these trees are producing fruit monthly. And the leaves of these trees, you can take them and use them, and they become medicine. They're healing for the nations. 
The fish that are in this stream are so plentiful and great that to throw your net is to immediately have it breaking. And this, this fresh water flows down to the sea, and where the fresh water meets the salt water, it doesn't create that, you know, whatever, estuary or whatever the word is for that mix. Instead, the fresh water invades the salt water, and the salt water becomes fresh. Do you see what it's describing? Out from the presence of the Lord is coming a light, is coming a restoration, is coming a life. And you are part of that life. And yeah, you're going to suffer. It's going to be really, really hard. But as you live, as you do, you've got your eyes focused on this promise, this change. The whole healing of the world, the healing of the nations, the unmaking of all the bad stories. That he is going to change everything and he's going to do it through Christ and through, and this is insane, God's people, you and me. This is what he shows us through Philippians. He's not only telling you about Christ who humbles himself, going from heaven to earth and then from earth to death and then from death to life and life to glorification. He's not just telling us that story. He then is telling us the story of himself, Paul. A weak, distant reflection of Jesus, but a reflection. And then Timothy. And then Epaphroditus. And then, 2,000 years later, you and me doing the same thing, feeling the same love, electrified by the same joy, under the same commands to bring about the same mission and end. So do it. Okay, how? Well, that's the last part here. There's two kind of commands that I want to give you, I want to lay on you. First is to dwell, and second is to demonstrate. You're only going to understand this love if you really dwell in it. That's why I, I give you the, I think, biblical command to daily enjoy this love. Here's how I want you to dwell. I've got three sort of subpoints. One is to explore. The Scriptures, the Bible, is what tells you about this love. That means that daily you need to spend time in the Scripture. That's not a law. That's an invitation. That, that word is going to expand for you, explode for you in your own mind, in your own heart, the amazing love that God has for you. So explore it. It's difficult. I get it. Come back. Come on Sundays. Let us help you. Buy a study Bible. Come to community group. Make some friends. Get into a community, a book club around this scripture. Explore it. Remember it. The Bible says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That there is a remembering that has to take place. If you just take this stuff and imagine the first time you hear it, it's like a nail that's gone all the way down into your heart, you're wrong. Your heart's hard. This stuff just flows back off of you. And you've got to remember it again. And then again. And then again, and then again, and then again. If we want to get this truth down into your heart, we need like a hammer drill that's a thousand times going back and forth, back and forth, shoving this truth down into your brain, down into your heart. You've got to remember it. That's why in the Old Testament, God said to his people that they've got to remember it. He said in Deuteronomy 6, these words I command you, I want to be on your heart. And if they're going to be on your heart, you've got to teach them diligently to your children. They've got to grow up just swimming in it, and you've got to be talking about it. Talking about it when you, sit your, uh, when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You're going to bind them as a sign on your hand, and they'll be as frontlets between your eyelids. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that every day and every way you see and remember these truths. 
And you say, well, what do I start with? I don't know. Philippians? It's a great place to start. I I bet you've probably got somewhere to start. But if not, please give me the honor of talking to you and giving you a place in Scripture to begin. And then, of course, enjoy it. All the best feelings of the world are love. Take time to just sit in the love of God. Journal about it. Pray to Him over it. Write out what you're thankful for. And as you taste and see, then, not just dwell, but demonstrate. Take this love out to the whole world around you with a joy in your heart. Try it. Last week, I gave you that assignment. I asked you to do one thing. Pick one thing to try and do for somebody else with the right motives. Did you do it? Oh, wow. Overwhelming nods. Yeah, great job, everybody. No, of course not. Okay, well, let's change that. Try again. Demonstrate this love. If you need me to tell you how to do it, I feel like we're missing the mark. I think God's going to lead you. I think you're going to have a million different ways to demonstrate that love. And I pray that you would so that this joy does become a fire that burns through this world. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would light the world on fire with the light and the heat, the change and the power that is you. That your Holy Spirit would fill your people and fill your church. That we would be like a city on a hill, a bright light that changes the world. Lord, we have no reason to expect this other than all the different times you've done this in the past. That you have a steadfast love that doesn't walk away even when your people are selfish and proud and doing things for their own interests rather than those of the world. Instead, Father, you continue and you work and we pray that you would with us and through us for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.